1: docked that day at Pyramid Wharf number 13. It did so amidst a storm of controversy. A decommissioned troop ship hastily refitted to carry a very different kind of human cargo. The O'Han de only brought 72 passengers who were not Jewish. This meant that it contravened the Australian government quota in force since mid-1946 that limited the number of Jewish immigrants on any one vessel to 25%. Only two boats ever got away with breaking the quota. The other, the Huey Lien from Shanghai, docked in Sydney on the 28th of January 1947 and carried 306 Jewish refugees out of a total of 474 passengers. Arthur Corwell, the Minister for Immigration in the Chifley government, grudgingly gave his approval. What followed was a public relations nightmare for the minister and his department. The press had a field day labelling the Huenlien's Jewish immigrants professional troublemakers, racketeers and peddlers of false documents. They were also accused of bribing officials and trickery. In allowing the Huenlien to dock, Corwell was accused of flooding the country with undesirable Jews. The arrival of the Johan de Witt two months later, with twice the number of Jews and half the number of non-Jews, was a breach too far. Corwell was furious with the one man he held personally responsible for flouting the quota,
0: Leo Fink. Hello, and once again, a warm welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Margaret Tuft is a research associate at the Australian Centre for Jewish Civilisation at Monash University. Her publications include From Victim to Survivor, The Emergence and Development of the Holocaust Witness 1941 to 1949, and A Second Chance The Making of Yiddish Melbourne. Today I'm talking to Margaret Taft about her new book, Leo and Mina Fink, For the Greater Good. Margaret, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Leo Fink arrived in Melbourne in 1928, and I'm curious to know what the attraction was to Australia and to Melbourne in particular, and what kind of social environment a Jewish man might find when he arrived in Melbourne at that time?
1: Well, I found this particularly interesting and um, not a unique experience because there were Jewish immigrants coming to Melbourne at that time, small numbers, relatively speaking. At the time, uh, Leo and his three brothers were working with his father in a textile mill in Romania, believe it or not. They'd left Bialystok, which was their town of birth. They travelled there because there were opportunities in the post First World War. And for whatever reasons, Uh, Leo's father had taken a leap of faith, if you like, to take the family and resettle them. By 1928, the business wasn't doing well. We're not quite sure what happened, but Leo's father, Mordechai decided that was it, he was going to go back to Bialystok. Leo, who'd already been a man of the world, had lived in mandatory Palestine, had worked and studied in the Weimar Germany for four years decided that Yellowstock held no future for them. And as a young, adventurous man with a great deal of aspiration and initiative and three brothers who were willing to go into the other end of the earth, he was reading a newspaper from Vienna which had an insert about this wonderful new golden country, a land full of sunshine, Australia, and it was welcoming immigrants. And he just made the decision that this is where he was going to go. His father agreed to this because it was a new adventure and it offered uh, a new beginning, a new opportunities for them. The first port of Australia they saw was Fremantle and then they travelled to Melbourne because Melbourne already had a Jewish community, particularly in Carlton, had been a place of first Jewish settlement since the 1870s. Which sort of gave them what I call a soft cultural landing. There were other Yiddish and Polish speakers already there in Carlton. The rest of Australia was probably a pretty different kind of place. It did have some anti Semitism, but it was very, what I call social and popular. It wasn't systemic. There were no pogroms in Melbourne. There never had been. There never would be. And one of the things that I think people like the Finks would have relished, these brothers that came was the fact that they could, they could join the civil service, they could get a free education, they could own property. There were no restrictions on them.
0: Might not have been able to join the Melbourne Club, but I don't think that would have bothered them terribly. You mentioned for a moment there the town of Bialystok, and both Leo and Mina Fink's origins are in that town. There seems to be something special about that town. What was the geographical and political significance of Bialystok? And how did it shape the lives of Leo and Mina?
1: Bialystok is a border town. It was on the crossroads between Tsarist Russia and Poland. It became very rapidly an industrial centre, a textile centre. And the uniqueness about Bialystok, and while a lot of Polish towns and cities had high Jewish uh, populations, more so than Bialystok, by the turn of the 20th century, in about 1900, the Jewish population of Bialystok constituted 75% of its entire population, which made it a very Jewish city. And that didn't mean that it was free of anti Semitism. It was a city that had everything the Jewish world could offer and everything that threatened its existence. Leo and Minna were brought up in incredibly challenging times. They survived a First World War, which destroyed Bialystok, but they saw it being rebuilt by the Jewish interconnected world of Bialystokers living in New York who decided they would form a union and help to rebuild their, their town of birth. Bialystok was a cultural centre. It had Yiddish newspapers. It had Jewish schools, had Jewish hospitals. It taught Leo and Mina how to survive. It taught them the strength of an interconnected Jewish world and the ability for Jews who would need to self-help in order to survive. And I think they were critical lessons for the things. And Bialystok became um, well-known for its social investment in social capital. So the people that came to Melbourne from Bialystok also became sort of community leaders, if you like. And I think that, to me, was an important consideration in coming to terms with an understanding of what the sort of people at Leo and Minna
0: were. So we have to talk about the partnership between Leo and Mina, or Miriam Wax, as she was then known, and it's something of an arranged marriage by what I can Completely gather. Completely arranged, yes. <laughs> What's the story behind their their meeting? In their
1: marriage? Well, um, Mina was 12 years Leo's junior. We have to be aware that 1932, Australia was at the height of the Depression. We had 32% unemployment, the only country in the world that had higher unemployment was Germany. So for Leo and his brothers to already be financially secure enough to give Leo a credit note for £1,500 to go back to Bialystok and buy machinery to expand the business was really quite extraordinary. So Leo makes the trip back to Bialystok in 1932. And the story is that as a 31-year-old man, Leo's mother, Masha was somewhat perturbed that he was not yet married. And he said, "I've been too busy to get married. I've emigrated to a new country. The brothers and I have been working. We're building up a business." So she made the suggestion that she would find him a bride. She came back with three choices. One was very educated. One came from a very wealthy family, and the third one really captured him. It was a young, vivacious, educated, just finished her matriculation in a very prestigious school. She was pretty and she had been orphaned at the age of eight and raised by her grandparents. And to marry an orphan was considered a good deed, was considered the right thing to do. And I think when he met Mina, he was really captured by her vivacity, um, her openness to a new life. This is a young 19, 18-year-old girl at that time, she wasn't yet 19, who was ready to leave a country that she'd never left before travel across the seas with a man she didn't know and start a new life, which I think is extraordinary. I think she trusted her judgment. He was a good man. And I think she made the decision and he made the decision that this could be a good match. And it most certainly was.
0: I suppose these days we might refer to Leo and Mina Fink as a power couple. <laughs> and together, Leo and Mina built a happy and successful life in Melbourne. What led them to use their social position and, and financial stability to reach out to Jewish immigrants in a place like Melbourne, so far from the conflict? I think they had an
1: exceedingly deep connection to the Jewish world, to Jewish humanity. I think they saw themselves as one link in a very large chain and to repair and to, and to re-establish a very broken Jewish world was something that really fired them. And Leo wrote shortly before his death, the Holocaust shattered me. I couldn't stand by and do nothing. And and Mina said, we all lost someone. We all knew someone. And I think that they were in a position where they knew they could effect change for the better. And when they started uh, their ascent into community leadership roles, This was at the height of the the Holocaust. This was in 1942. So they started trying to organise welfare packages through organisations that could get into liberated areas because by 1944, July of 1944, parts of Europe were already being liberated. So it took Leo a little bit of time to develop um, what became the Australian Jewish Welfare Society and Minna, Ran the women's group of that society. And she very quickly garnered 900 volunteers, women, who would gather and collect clothing, food items that they could ship. Um, And she was very particular. She was a very formidable woman who, only in her 20s at that time, was commandeering what she called her army. And they rented a warehouse in the city and they started collecting goods. And she was most adamant that anything was sent had to be of quality. If if it needed mending, it had to be hand-stitched. It had to be clean because you had to treat people with dignity. didn't matter what circumstances they were in. So they started off as a kind of relief organisation. By the time the war was starting to be, we could see the end in sight, they started to realise, and Leo believed, that he could do a lot of good by bringing survivors to Australia because the world wasn't particularly interested in Holocaust survivors. Survivors were interested in survivors and, and Jewish immigrants who come here from Europe were very interested in the survivor world and rebuilding. So the organisation that Leo and Mina had actually founded moved itself from international relief into an, a force for immigration. And that brought huge challenges with it.
0: So they built this, uh, I guess, platform as community leaders. How was that received by the established order of the Jewish community at that time in Australia? Well, they had different ways of operating, if I could put it that way. There were cultural differences.
1: Um, Leo had no hesitation in approaching anybody for anything if he thought it was for the greater good. And he believed that he could when he had to, like with the Johan de Witt, step over protocol and bureaucracy and just get the job done. Because the story of how the Johan de Witt gets here is, is an interesting story in itself. And he does defy, if you like, regulations and takes a punt that the boat will not be turned around. We've had Jews in Australia since the first Europeans set foot on the soil. So they were an established community, they didn't like to rock the boat quite largely. They thought that if they could work within the establishment, within the protocols, then they were very fearful of, you know, raising the ire of of fueling anti-Semitism and wanted to do things by the book. And sometimes they saw themselves as the rightful mouthpiece of the Jewish community. And Leo certainly did have an altercation um, with uh, Saul Simons, who was running welfare in Sydney and was very much a member of the establishment. So there were there was a different kind of cultural background and Minna and, and Leo just believed that sometimes you had to roll up your sleeves and just get
0: on with it. In the process of bringing these uh, Jewish immigrants out to Australia, it can't have been an easy task. What were the cultural and, dare I say, bureaucratic obstacles they faced in the process and how did they get around those?
1: Australian immigration, what we do know, let me just go back a little bit. Arthur Corwell, who was the First Minister for Immigration, had a very visionary, very bold and audacious plan for Australia. He wanted to build Australia through immigration because the war, the Second World War, had exposed Australia's vulnerability We were a small nation. We were um, very rich with minerals. We we needed to do two things. We needed to be able to defend ourselves and we had to really build and grow the economy. So in order to do that, we had to grow the population faster than it could do by natural growth. So part of that um, immigration policy meant that he had to look overseas for immigrants. Corwell began that program, which was then followed by the Menzies government, and Harold Holt, who was the First Minister for Immigration for Menzies, basically followed what Chifley government and Arthur Corwell had done. They basically followed the same policies. So they did form uh, particular, if you like, contracts with overseas organisations, with overseas countries, and they brought in immigrants that they thought would be assisting them in fulfilling that very bold mission but jewish immigrants weren't part of the picture if you think australia was harsh in the post-war period look to canada look to the united states have a look at what their immigration policies were like and how difficult it was for immigrants to get in this was the thing that governments did so jewish immigrants weren't particularly the type of immigrant that the australian government was looking to support so it fell to the jewish community to financially support and guarantee any Jewish immigrants that came in that post-war period. There was no support from the government. Now, in order to not create what they called an influx of Jews, by about 1948-49, there was a kind of an agreement between the Jewish leaders, community and the government, that there would never be more than 3,000 Jews coming in in one year. It was a handshake agreement. It never exceeded three thousand, and that was partly because Corwell himself was very predisposed to the Jewish community. He had excellent relationships with Jewish leaders. His electorate took in Carlton, which was a home of Jewish immigrants, and he was he was a kind and a compassionate man towards the Jewish community, but. He was a great political operator. So with one hand, he did allow the community to bring in their immigrants, support themselves, make sure they weren't a burden on the state. And then in the same way, he could continue his bold immigration policy. There are lots of photographs in newspapers of Arthur Corwell with his blonde bolts because he thought that they would assimilate more easily and didn't think Jewish communities would assimilate as quickly and as easily within the Australian social scene, if you like.
0: What did the 1950s bring for Leo and Mina Fink?
1: By 1954, most of the, most of the influx of Holocaust survivors had already arrived in Australia. 17,300 um, came from either the DP camps or the free-living um, survivors in Europe had already come to settle in Australia. After that, there was, a, there was an intake after the Hungarian uprising of 1956 and then in about 1958, we had another intake of Polish Jews who were leaving communist Poland at that time. So the immigration of survivors had slowed down dramatically. So the 50s started to see Leo and Mina, if you like, still be entirely committed to Jewish welfare, but their vision starts to move in other directions. And by about 1957, Minna's already getting involved with the National Council of Jewish Women, And she becomes president of the Victorian branch. And that has also got a huge outreach and a huge welfare education platform. It still does. She was an incredibly self-confident, self-assured individual with great networking and organizational skills. So by 1960, things start to change for the Finks. And Leo starts looking back to the State of Israel, where he was a pioneer In 1920, and Minna and he start to look at what they could do to help bolster a very sort of fledgling
0: state. Margaret, thank you so much for introducing me to Leo and Minna Fink, and for such an interesting perspective on 20th century history. So, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me, and it's been a pleasure. And I hope everyone enjoys reading the book. Thank you again.
0: I've been talking to Margaret Taft about her new book, Leo and Minna Fink. For the Greater Good. It's published by Monash University Press and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.